Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, mammals may be driven to extinction by a volcanic new supercontinent. That's quite a scary headline. Don't worry, it's at least 250 million years away. We meet the researcher behind that study to explain why the very distant future could be so destructive for us. Encounters between people and bears has been climbing of late in this country as more and more people hit the back country. And that threat has culminated in the deaths of two hikers and their dog in Banff National Park on Friday. We speak to a bear expert about what could have gone wrong there and what needs to be done to counter the increase in these bear encounters. Manitoba has elected a new government tonight with the NDP under Wab Canoe, defeating the incumbent progressive conservatives and Heather Stephenson, Canoe becomes the first First Nations Premier of a Canadian province. We'll get all kinds of reaction on both the campaign and the outcome from Winnipeg. Atlantic columnist David Frum is with me with his thoughts on the impact of a former Nazi soldier receiving a standing ovation from MPs during Ukraine. President Zelensky's address to Parliament last month and Canada's diplomatic battle with India and how it all shows this country needs to take national security more seriously. But first, as Alberta continues to gear up for a fight with Ottawa over net zero energy grid requirements by 2035, Premier Daniel Smith is with me to talk about why she sees it as unattainable for her province. First up, you could be forgiven for thinking Alberta's Premier has something of an irrational dislike of the federal government. Well, this one at least, <laughs> this current one. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith says she would use her province's Sovereignty Act as a last resort to challenge any attempt by the federal government to impose a net zero electric- electricity grid by 2035. She says achieving net zero 12 years from now is not realistic, adding that it could lead to power blackouts because Alberta doesn't have a reliable source of baseload power, such as natural gas. Uh, again, she's looking for others uh, to support her on this, other provincial premiers, and she's still discussing this with the federal government. Last week, the rarely heard from head of the Alberta Electric System Operator or AESO, Mike Law, came out to echo the Premier's concerns. It's a recognition that we are in a very different position as a province than the vast majority of the rest of the country. Right. Uh, the Federal Environment Minister, Stephen Gilbo, who's been uh, pushing this quite hard, doesn't, it sort of disputes all of this. He says the 2035 net zero timeline is indeed realistic, doesn't want this country to be left behind as the US and other G7 nations move towards clean electricity. Others say, you know, he's probably right. Here's Tim Weiss with the University of Alberta. And it's a pretty big jump from where we are today in Alberta to where, you know, where we need to be in the, in the coming decades. But it is possible. And it's not the only battle brewing these days between Alberta and Ottawa. The province is also looking to move ahead with a plan on pulling out of the Canada Pension Plan to establish an Alberta equivalent. Traditionally, polling shows most Albertans aren't in favour of that one. But the Premier is spending money and assuring them that premiums will go down and their benefits will go up. The plan to take $334 billion, which is more than half of the CPP's total assets under management at this point in time. So lots of lots of roads still to travel on that one. But to tackle all of this, joining me now is indeed Alberta's Premier, Daniel Smith. Premier Smith, thank you so much. My pleasure. I, I, obviously, I follow your social media feed. A lot of talk these days, a lot of concern, obviously, on your side about what a 2035 net zero energy grid would look like. And some pretty dire warnings, too. Uh, I, th- I think a lot of 
folks across the country understand that this will be a hard one for Alberta to meet. But uh, it feels like it's getting pretty heated between Edmonton and Ottawa right now. And it shouldn't, unfortunately. I mean, I I told the prime minister in my very first conversation with him when I got elected that we were aligned with him on seeking carbon neutrality by 2050, because we think that with natural capital turnover, allowing for innovation, allowing for some of these new projects to be built, allowing for hydrogen to develop, small modular nuclear, interties with British Columbia and maybe even Manitoba, that we could actually get there if we had a long enough runway. And so we've been trying to have negotiations for the last year. And unfortunately, it seems to me like the environment minister is uh, either deliberately trying to sabotage our discussions, or he's just continuing to to throw a monkey wrench into the discussions. We're trying to be reasonable. He is not. And when it, when he acts increasingly unreasonable, we have no choice but to, to fight back so that people understand our concern. What do you think the challenge is? I mean, I think anybody who you speak to, if you look at the energy del- delivery companies, they, they think 2045 would be realistic. I mean, what do you think the hangup is on this? Because it, it's, it's a date, right? And dates, as long as you're moving in the right direction, it feels like dates should be somewhat flexible. Oh, and they should be, except for they've made this uh, criminal code violation. If our companies are not 95% abated on their natural gas plants by 2035, they go to jail. I can tell you, you can talk to energy executives in Alberta, and I've, I've talked to several. And I said, well, will your board of directors allow you to start a natural gas abated program on this basis, knowing that in January of 2035, if you're not in the compliance, that someone's going to jail for that? And they said, absolutely right. not. It's put the chill on today. And that's why we want to continue the negotiation. We want to be reasonable. We want to set a reasonable time frame. But with the hammer of, of uh, criminal code and jail time ha- hanging over our heads and over the heads of our business leaders, we, we have to push back very strongly. You, you must know that, that the environment minister absolutely disputes that, that no, that no, that no energy executives are going to jail and all this. I, I, but but you, you've heard this. I know you've heard the response. But you know what? The, then, then why does he use the criminal code power? Like th- mm. that's the whole point. Is this is exclusive jurisdiction? Why does BC have BC Hydro and the development of of your hydroelectric resources? It's because mm-hmm. exclusive jurisdiction belongs to the province on these matters. So they're trying to insert themselves into our jurisdiction, and the only way they can do that is by declaring something criminal. So he's not being truthful. We want the country to understand that we're aligned on getting to 2050, and Guibault is the one who's not being reasonable. When you look at renewables, I was reading a really interesting thing about Texas the other day. You must know, of course, Texas has the biggest renewable energy sector in the in, in the U.S. right now. And I often think of Texas and, and Alberta as being similar. We're in different we're in different unions, obviously, but similar. Uh, why shut down renewables for six months if you if they are part of the equation here? Well, Texas also had massive power grid failure a number of years ago. It did. It did. And, yes, that was yeah. yes. And, yeah. and, and and it was because if you don't build enough baseload power to to match what you have for your intermittent power. If the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you still need to be able to provide electricity to people when it's plus 30 and they need their air conditioners and when it's minus 30 and they need to turn their furnaces on. Mm-hmm. And what happened in uh, in Texas that year is that the uh, the power grid failed and wind wasn't available to come on on demand in order to be able to fix things. And so right. we know that in our market, there is a huge enthusiasm for uh, wind and solar. In fact, when we put the pause on, we had 23,000 megawatts of power that are lined up in the queue of solar and wind, but virtually no natural gas. And since we've had the pause, we're now up to 41,000 megawatts of solar and wind in the queue 
and virtually no natural gas. We have to have the balance. If we're bringing on more wind and solar, we have to figure out a way to back it up. That's why we needed the pause. The other part of it is that these wind turbines are extraordinarily expensive to remove. I've received a, a budget estimate of anywhere up to a million dollars to be able to remove each of the turbines. It's 850 square uh, yeah, yeah. cubic I've meters of, yeah. of concrete. They're the size of the Calgary Tower. And they also have these massive blades. They all need to be moved away in landfill. We, we can't saddle a landowner with that potential cost. So we have to figure right. out what the what the plan is for remediation once it's over. And then, these, of course, all these orphan wells. So, I mean, it just there's always this idea that it feels like the system's a little gamed here. And that's and that's that's just an outsider's point of view, that the system's a little gamed against certain things ideologically. I mean, Texas, as it says, is agnostic when it comes to energy. It's just just likes energy. Right. Well, my, my background is uh, landowner advocacy. Right. And so I, I believe that every landowner shouldn't have to worry about having a big wreck on their property that they're ultimately responsible for, whether it's an oil well or whether that's a solar farm or whether it's wind turbine. And so my approach has been we've got to make sure all of these have a, a, a reasonable cleanup plan. In our government, we've begun to demand that energy companies clean up 3% of their liability per year. That just started last year. And so mm-hmm. I don't want to be the one creating a new wreck 20 years from now where somebody says, well, didn't you learn your lesson with oil and gas? Why did you let solar and wind do exactly the same thing? So we're being proactive on all fronts. Tell me a bit about this idea of the Alberta Pension Fund. It's not new, an Alberta Pension Plan, I should say. You you started to market it a little bit. What what do you think the advantage is here for for Albertans? We'll start with their advantage in all this. Well, one of the things people may need to have for context is that the the notion of, of having Alberta assert more of its autonomy in areas of jurisdiction goes back to 2001 with the firewall letter that was written by Stephen Harper, who went on to become prime minister of the country. And so these these ideas of an Alberta pension plan, Alberta collecting its own provincial revenue the way Quebec does, having its own provincial police the way Quebec does, having more control over its own immigration the way Quebec does, that has been a a very long-term conversation in our province for, for over 20 years. And one of the things that we heard from Albertans is they wanted to know, what does it look like? Um, if we were to have a pension plan, and if we what, do a report and uh, put it to a referendum of the people. And so I'm just completing that work that was begun four years ago. The report was commissioned by my predecessor. It was finalized uh, just a couple of months ago. It's now been released, and we're having a conversation about it. And if Albertans decide that they want to have an, an individual pension, uh, Alberta-based pension, then we'll put it to a referendum. But we're in the consultation process right now. Right. What do you say to, to the rest of Canadians? Because, of course, as you well know, you, you must have friends and family in other parts of the country. This is all our money, right? This CPP was one of those rare success stories. I mean, I grew up in Quebec. I can tell you what, what, what not liking Ottawa looks like. You know, this was one of those rare success stories, the CPP, for many Canadians across the country paid into it dutifully over many, many years. And then, of course, they, what they will see is that $334 billion sort of separation payment that, that is being asked for. What do you tell other Canadians about this? Because it feels like the CPP is one of those things that feels like all our money. Well, you know, I hope that what the rest of the country sees is, wow, does Alberta ever overpay? for this particular program. I wonder how many other programs they're overpaying for, because I can tell you what the answer is. Every single one of them. But that's your younger population, though. I mean, that's just the way it works, right? Every single federal program has Alberta paying more into Confederation than we get back in benefits. It, it, it shouldn't work that way. And when, uh, when when we begin to be treated badly by by Central Canada, by Ottawa in particular, and we kick up a fuss, people look at us as saying, "Oh, why are you fighting back?" But that's the point. We're fighting back because Ottawa doesn't treat us fairly, and I think Albertans have pretty well had it. And so I have a mandate 
to look at ways that we can keep more of those dollars in our province to meet the needs of our own citizens, especially since the since we we, we haven't been um, successful in getting Ottawa's attention. We passed an equalization referendum saying we wanted to have a, a new conversation about how our country worked, and they pretty much ignored us. I just don't feel like this country. I mean, again, I grew up in Quebec. I lived in Edmonton and, and in Montreal as a child. So I sort of have a strange, strange experience with this. I don't think we can afford to have two Quebecs in this country, Premier Smith. <laughs> like, honestly, you know, like, you part know, of, I mean, that's part of the problem is that if you love this country, you kind of like it united. And I grew up in a, in a province where they certainly didn't want to see it united. And I sometimes just see it from through that prism and it. And it's scary, frankly. Well, it's scary to us that we have a, a single minister, the environment minister, right. who has said he wants to shut down our energy industry, wants to stop using natural gas. And that's why I think you're seeing the reaction that we are. I mean, I would love for our provincial counterparts to say, you know what, if they can do this to Alberta, maybe we're next. Maybe all the premiers should be pushing back as hard as I am. We're not the only ones who are facing this kind of attack from Ottawa. We're just probably the the one that's that's getting the lion's share of the attacks. But everybody else is going to be impacted by this too. Saskatchewan's in the similar situation that we are when it comes to the hydrocarbons on their power grid. So is Nova Scotia. So is New Brunswick. And so we feel like we have an obligation to help educate other other provinces. We'd love to have allies in this fight against Ottawa. But my sights are set on one person, and that's Stephen Guibault, who's being very unreasonable and capricious. He's acting like a renegade, and he's damaging the relationship in the country. Quite it's frankly. interesting because, as you know, I mean, you're premier now. You know, you know Know that that your ministers don't have that much. I mean, they have power, but they don't have that much power, really. Don't can't you can't you pick up the phone if you're upset? Give them a call. And we, you know, we have, and you know, yeah. I've had a good a good conversation with Justin Trudeau. I think he's quite keen on helping us figure out a regulatory framework to roll out uh, small modular nuclear. I think that's mm-hmm. one area that we will have common cause. I've, I have a great relationship with David Eby in British Columbia. We're talking about how we might be able to work together on getting an Article Six exemption so that when we reduce emissions in internationally, we get some of the credit back here that's allowed under the Paris Accord. Francois-Philippe Champagne is very enthusiastic about our hydrogen industry and a couple of the net zero projects that are are developing here. So so I have good relationships with some of the ministers. It's just, it's a head scratcher to me about why they're allowing uh, this particular minister to be so unreasonable and so damaging and not writing him in. One last hot topic fight going on to ask you about pronouns in schools. Alberta hasn't stepped into that into that void for now. Um, Saskatchewan certainly has. We saw Premier Mo, who you know well, talk about invoking the notwithstanding clause last week, obviously New Brunswick. Where do you sit on that? Well, I always try to think about it from the perspective of a child who's going through some really difficult times through puberty. And we've got to make sure that they're supported with all of the mental health and psychological support that they might need as they're sorting through. Maybe they're gay. Maybe they've had a traumatic incident. Maybe they do want to transition. Maybe they hate their body for some reason. That has to be the starting point is let's make sure that that child knows who they are and have that support. Second part of that, though, is that we can't be having families have secrets from each other. Um, You have to be able to have that child feel supported by all the adults in their life. They can't have one identity at school and then another identity at home. And then I think the last thing is that when we're talking about permanent sex changes, where somebody's fertility is going to be ended, those are decisions that have to be made 
as adults. And, and those are the kind of things that, that we're contemplating is that we don't want a child to prematurely make a decision that will be completely life altering. They have to be sure about that. So that's how I'm looking at this. I'm watching the kind of legislation that's going forward in other provinces. And we may end up having to legislate in this area as well. We want to do it in a way that protects the right of the child first and uh, supports families second, and also just make sure that it's, um, it's good medical practice third. Danielle Smith, thank you so much. My pleasure. Talk to you again. It's now my duty to inform the House that the Honorable Element now de mon devoir d'informer la Chambre. Que l'Honorable Député de All Elmer, Greg Herbert. There you go. He uh, switched uh, the, he switched to French there before giving away the name. So everyone was laughing about that. Greg Fergus, uh, the MP from Hall Elmer, the Liberal MP, is the new Speaker of the House of Commons. Uh, he was elected today by his fellow MPs, uh, setting history. He's the first uh, black Canadian to hold that position. Of course, it came with the resignation of the previous Speaker, Anthony Rota, uh, who had to step down, you may recall, just a week ago, week ago today, over the, uh, the fury that erupted when, in fact, he invited a constituent of his to attend Vladimir Zelensky's address to Parliament um, and then honoured him in Parliament. And it turned out, of course, that this was a Second World War veteran who had fought with a Nazi unit uh, during the war. And so, of course, the fallout from that continues to be felt. Um, Fergus, though, said that respect is a fundamental part of what they do in Parliament and that uh, MPs need to show Canadians that example. There can be no dialogue unless there's a mutual understanding of respect. If there can be no ability to pursue the arguments, to make your points be heard, unless we all agree to extend to each other that sense of respect and decorum. So I'm going to be working hard on this. That's, of course, what uh, the hope is going forward. But looking to the past, as I mentioned, despite Anthony Rota's personal apology and the Prime Minister's subsequent apology on behalf of all parliamentarians, all Canadians, not a personal apology, as some had asked for, that unintentional invitation to the 98-year-old uh, Second World War uh, Nazi unit veteran uh, for President Zelensky's speech more than 10 days ago now has still been felt. I mean, it handed Russia and its proxies a pretty significant public relations victory, which they were pouncing on again today when Greg Fergus was elected as the replacement. Uh, they did some real damage to Canada's reputation. And it's not the only thorny issue we found ourselves in, perhaps the most obvious, quote unquote, own goal, self-inflicted wound of them all. But the situation with India continues to deteriorate. We'll talk about that uh, now and in the next hour. And uh, there have been other issues around, uh, you know, that announcement late last week about a cut to our military budget won't be making any of our allies happy either. So Canada finds itself in some difficult, uh, in some hot water these days. And to help, uh, help me discuss that is Atlantic columnist and author David Frum. His latest book is called Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. Uh, David, thank you so much. Welcome back. So interesting to talk. It's been, uh, I mean, it's hard to put, put a finger on just how difficult a few weeks it's been diplomatically for Canada, but perhaps we can start with this whole episode with Yaroslav Hunka in the House of Commons, the, uh, the 98-year-old who obviously had fought with a uh, Nazi regiment back in the Second World War. It, I mean, this one felt like a plane crash, that so many things would have to go wrong 
And yeah. yet a lot of people have been warning about some systems failures for a long time that could have led to this kind of diplomatic absolute disaster. Yeah, well, the the truest victim of the disaster is, of course, um, visiting Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, um, who is a guest of Canada and under Canadian protection. Um, now, Canadians have, uh, have seen many American presidents visit Ottawa, and when the American president comes, basically the Secret Service takes responsibility for everything. There's a lot of cooperation back and forth between Canadian and U.S. security services, but the Secret Service takes the lead. Um, for all other visiting dignitaries, um, they, they don't have those kinds of capacities. And so it is the job of the host country to ensure the safety of the visiting dignitary um, and the success of the visiting dignitary's mission. And in this case, Zelensky, he's one of the most hunted men in the world. Uh, the Russians try to murder him as they try to murder other opponents. They don't just use gunfire. They use all kinds of things, nerve gas methods they've used in England. And of course, the Russians also have a lot of propaganda against him. So you would think this visit would be so carefully planned from every point of view. And it looks like that didn't happen. Indeed. And in this case, I think we've gone through sort of the machinations of what the speaker's rule is, how they would have, you know, in this case, maybe would have had unfettered, an unfettered ability to invite uh, this person to witness the speech and, in fact, recognize them, applaud them in the House of Commons. I mean, it feels in hindsight, it's absolutely disastrous. But you can kind of I mean, you've talked about this. You can see how he's a constituent of the speakers or the former speakers. You can kind of see where this would have all gone wrong if no one had stopped to say, hey, wait a second. Who did yes. he fight for when? Yes. Well, the, um, the particular uh, riding, Nipissing to, um, to Miskaming, is a swing riding. It's gone back and forth between conservatives and, and liberals, tightly contested. So obviously the speaker, although he's not a member of the liberal caucus exactly, but he might be in the future, um, that seat matters. Um, and of course, the Canadian politics is very local and often ethnic considerations have an important part to play. Um, the Ukrainian Canadian community um, has got some complicated history, uh, and I don't want to slight the complications of the history in, in this particular case. Not everybody who fought in World War II had a lot of choice about what they did. Um, but you would think that given who was visiting, there would be more care taken, and that the first thought in the mind of the Speaker of the House would not be, um, how can I score some points in my district? Yeah, I mean, if you look up his, if you Google his name, you know, there was an endowment at the University of Alberta in his name. Uh, there was an interview with him on the streets, I think, of Timmins or North yeah. Bay back when, when he was sort of supporting Ukraine. I mean, you could see why he would have been seen solely through the prism of Ukraine equals good and be, yeah. and just be ignorant of the history of it. But the impact of this is hard to... It's hard to put into words what kind of impact this would have on Canada's reputation more broadly, because we essentially stuck a leader who's in a very vulnerable position in an even worse position. And, and that feels almost unpardonable. Yeah. And so, then, the, you know, it, it'll have an impact. Again, it doesn't have an imp impact on um, visitors from countries with very large budgets or very low security needs. Um, but I, I think if for, for Canada's sort of peer nations, um, it is going. It is going to raise some questions. If you're the um, pr uh, president of France, the Chancellor of Germany, if you're the uh, president of Mexico, and you're contemplating a visit to Canada, um, wh who's in charge of making this thing a success? Will I be embarrassed? Those are questions that have, have been raised. Yeah. Well, and you you do feel this plays into something broader, and this is this idea of kind of distilling everything into local politics and/or some sort of overseas 
goal. So you, everything has to be slotted and it creates a kind of myopia when it comes to foreign policy that can be very difficult in, in a world that is always is changing very quickly. Well, I have made this point often in discussions with, um, on the Hub Canada, where I talk every other week, and I'm, you've been kind enough to watch this, that Canada um, does not have a serious national security culture inside its political culture. Um, uh, un- unlike peer nations like Australia, which do, Canada really does not. And it's not quite a mystery why not, because um, look, Canada gets this for free security bonus windfall. Uh, Canada, it, it is not optional for the Americans to protect the security and integrity of Canada. They have to do it. Um, and so Canada gets the benefit of this, of this giant, limitless American uh, security bounty. And that allows Canadian politicians not to think about things in a way that, you know, an Australian prime minister has to wonder, well, if, if we're really in trouble, uh, maybe the Americans will come. Maybe they'll be busy. They were busy in 1941, the last time we got into serious trouble. Maybe they'll be busy this time. We'd better have our own capacity. Canadian prime minister knows the Americans are never too busy to defend Canada. They have to do it. Um, and they have to watch for um, a lot. They have to watch for, for not just military threats, but all kinds of threats. Um, as the government of Canada has made clear, the initial tip that something was amiss with this Indian assassination attempt in Canada, or this apparent Indian assassination attempt, was an American tip. Canada then followed up with its own resources, but it was, the, it was America's much greater resources that first alerted Canada that something was wrong. And and it does put us in a situation where these sorts of mistakes. I mean, you 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 brought up the example of you know of of an American president visiting, and all of a sudden there's Lee Harvey Oswald on on the on the guest list, or you know Saran Saran because he happened to live in in North Bay. I mean, it's just one of those things that it it does kind of the lack of seriousness sometimes comes through in mistakes like that. Even though I believe Anthony wrote his mistake was an honest one. What do you think the prime minister should do in a situation like this? Because I don't think he bears personal responsibility for the invite, even the celebration of, of Yaroslav Hunka. But he is the head of government. And you'd think that something from him acknowledging what had happened would be in, in an even more in an even more generous way than he did might be I think called any, for. Any head of government gets to use the it wasn't my fault. I couldn't have done anything about it card once and possibly twice. Um, but but this government has used the there was nothing I could have done about a card a lot. And in situations where there really was something, um, the Chinese electoral interference story, uh, that was one where the government really chose to look the other way, again, for reasons of ethnic politics. Um, they had intelligence, as the whole world now knows, dating back many years, that the Chinese state was interfering in these inter- uh, internal constituency politics in majority Chinese districts, um, where uh People have different views. There are some people who are uh, more nostalgic for the old country, some people more hostile to it, some people more um, pro-Hong Kong, some people less. And the Chinese state was using various kinds of pressure tactics and even physical threats uh, to elevate its people within the Chinese-Canadian community and punish the, the Chinese, those Chinese-Canadians who were hostile to the Chinese communist state. And the government knew all of this, but because that ethnic politics was working to the government's advantage, or I shouldn't say because, that's more than we know, but as it happened, looking the other way worked to the government's advantage. It helped to tip a seat from liberals to conservative, uh, from conservatives to liberals. It helped to elevate people who are closer to the government. Um, they did nothing. And this is the same story with the Indian assassination. 
David Frum is with us this half hour. Uh, David, when you look at the situation with India right now, I mean, the other thing that's come up, we were talking a bit about how diaspora politics has, has played into a lot of what's happened, not only with the Chinese interference story, but also with the Indian interference story. There have been stories of late that, you know, there were warnings that India's intelligence service was, were kind of stepping over the line uh, in our country that yeah. were ignored because of, because again, of ideas of diplomacy and diaspora and not wanting to anger the the relationship with india so it feels like we keep getting this balance a bit off and i wonder why because other countries face the same challenges they're accused of getting it wrong as well but feels like canada often makes the wrong call on the on this balance between protecting your own borders and maintaining decent relationships with powerful countries look these are genuinely hard problems and and the anyway the question of what is right and what is wrong that that's controversial but mm-hmm. what where canada is different from and again australia is a very relevant comparison here is canada just does a weak job of integrating security concerns into decision making um you know that you look at the canadian senate it's an appointed body there's a lot of opportunities there to um, elevate people with military backgrounds or other kinds of security backgrounds people from the intelligence services they're not there. Um, and uh, Canada doesn't have much in the way of a national security council system. Um, the prime minister does have a security advisor, uh, but that role is um, quite personal. The prime minister pays attention or not. The prime minister has a lot of leeway to pick that person, unlike um, the people who provide civilian advice, where it's sort of the the prime minister may pick the very top advisor, but there is a kind of there's a there's a staff that arise through merit, and then you can pick the one that the prime minister of the day finds most congenial. But there is a formalized system of, of advice, um, and so prime ministers on domestic affairs just you know uh, if if there's a flood, if there's a natural disaster, if there's a banking crisis, prime ministers are usually not caught unawares, um, and they and it's difficult for them afterwards to say, oh, I had no idea that this problem was brewing in a way that on the national security side, it is. So Canada needs to develop a national security architecture. One of the things, particular reforms I've long urged is that retired um, members of the military and retired um, security personnel, CSIS and so on, should have um, an expedited way into the Senate and not just one or two, but maybe 10 or 12, so they can form a real security caucus and debate in the upper house, which is a little less partisan. Some of these issues from a nonpartisan security point of view, but make them higher on the Canadian agenda than they have historically been. What do we do now? I mean, the, uh, the uh, FT was reporting today, some pretty explosive reporting, actually, both in, with India putting more pressure on removing diplomatic immunity from Canadian diplomats there, and also a suggestion that they've been aggressively acting, asking Canada to stop this investigation. Um, India feels like it's treading into some unfortunate territory right now as well, considering what a moment in the, in the sun this is yeah. for, for India. Well, when you say, what do we do? Do you want a prediction or do you want a recommendation? Both. <laughs> How about both, if you, if you can? Uh, so the prediction, the prediction is that India is going to totally get away with it in exchange for a promise not to do it again. Uh-huh. Good. And um, I think it's possible that one of the reasons the Indians did this action in Canada was they were testing the reaction because there are other active Sikh communities in Great Britain and in Southern California. And Canada... It, um, is the, the most vulnerable of that group of countries. And so the question is, well, if we do kill somebody, what, how bad will it be? And uh, the answer is it's, it's been quite embarrassing, but not very expensive for India. And I think there's going to be some kind of deal where um, I, I, this, I don't think um, India will accept responsibility. 
I think Canada will draw back from uh, directly accusing India of the responsibility. I don't think the intelligence information will be made public that, that indicates the precise degree of Indian culpability. Uh, but I think a, a promise not to do it again and certainly not to do it in the United States or Great Britain will be extracted. Um, and I think we've all had now notice that under Prime Minister Nandra Modi, um, the hopes that India might be evolving into a true partner of the democratic West, not just a strategic, uh, a, a, not just a strategic collaborator, but someone with country that with which you are united by deep values that that hope is going to be disappointed. India is treading in a bad direction and they've tasted blood and they've, they've used blood before, but not like this, not, not on, not on the soil of a major um, partner in the way that it has apparently happened here. Yeah. And when one looks at Canada, just just right now, with obviously our relationships with Russia are, are what they are. Our relationship with China has been in the deep freeze for quite a while. Our relationship with India is in the deep freeze. I mean, for very different reasons, that's an awfully huge chunk of the world's geography and population. It feels quite isolated right now for this country, which often just sort of flew under the radar. Well, Canada, the secret to Canadian security has always been partnerships and alliances um, and close collaboration uh, with the United States, with NATO partners. And uh, Canada gets a lot of benefit from that, but there's a price. You have to pay the, you have to pay your your share of the tab. And so this news that, for example, Canada is going to stall out its defense budget mm-hmm. short of the 2% t- uh, target it promised, um, that, there, that Canada may not be replenishing the weapons that were very appropriately sent to Ukraine, but now Canada needs to buy more, um, that, that that really sends a signal to allies. Um, Canada also needs to invest a lot more in um, non-military security capabilities, especially intelligence gathering, especially in cyber capabilities. Um, and Canada can afford, eminently afford it. It's not true that Canada, Canada certainly has the resources. Um, it spends a lot of money on a lot of things, some of them, um, you know, uh, that probably wouldn't pass fully democratic muster. Um, but it doesn't spend enough on this. And this is something that is the price of being heard and being uh, being taken seriously as an ally by other allies. David, as always, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Let's head to Banff National Park, because over the weekend on Friday, there was a tragedy there. Uh, two backcountry campers and their dog were killed by a grizzly bear. We found out a little bit more today from Parks Canada about the bear itself. They've conducted a necropsy and it was found to be older, a female, about 25 years old, um, normal body fat, lower than normal body fat for this time of year. That's one of the issues that has come up. Bears were still foraging around uh, before winter sets in. Uh, Again, it killed and attacked, uh, it attacked and killed two people in Banff National Park on Friday night. Now, uh, again, Parks Canada says the bear was deemed to be in fair condition. Teeth were poor. They're still trying to figure out more about this. They do know the bear itself was responsible. It was shot and killed uh, hours after the emergency response call was received. Uh, Parks Canada staff arrived at the scene and the bear charged the response team. Um, again, the people who died were longtime partners, according to a family member. In one report I saw, um, the couple's dog who was with them at the time, as I mentioned, was also killed. Bear spray was found at the scene and the couple's food had been hung appropriately. So everything we knew about them, they had taken precautions and knew what they were doing. Uh, Lisa Dalside of the Weaselhead Glenmore Park Preservation Society spoke to Global News over the weekend. Bear attacks are extremely unusual. It does not happen very often at all. Most of, most likely bears want to stay away from humans and not have an encounter with us. Uh, so something to provoke this 
was likely I give my condolences to the family and the friends, but likely something the humans did that provoked the attack. Aggressive encounters with bears as tracked by Parks Canada has been increasing since 2017. Kevin Von Teagam is a former Banff National Park superintendent. We have people canyoning. We have people building their own trails. We have people mountain biking. We have uh, every ridge top has got a trail to it and, and an Instagram page. And so uh, there, people are everywhere. Kim Titchener is owner and president of Bear Safety and More Incorporated in Alberta. And she joins me now. Kim, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, Kim, tell me a bit about your work, because I, that's probably an important part of this of this conversation. Just what do you what do you do? Well, I I work with government agencies and industries that are working in environments where there's bears and communities and recreationists uh, to help them learn and understand how to coexist with uh, large carnivores like bears and cougars and wolves and coyotes. And uh, I've been doing it for uh, a number of years, and and I, I love teaching people how to be safe and and learn to respect nature. Yeah, I mean, needless to say, you've been interviewed many, many times now since this unfor- this tragedy, really, in Bath National Park. How did you get involved in in this kind of work? Well, <laughs> I remember it was, I think it was my first year at university. I I was uh, in a in an environmental ethics class, and I was reading some of the works of like. Uh, Thoreau and uh, Rachel Carson and and right. and all of these amazing uh, conservationists out of the United States and environmentalists and uh, you know looking at like how the park systems was created and um, I also had uh, had lived in in uh, in Banff for a little bit right before I went to university and I was absolutely shocked that people live there with large carnivores like I remember someone saying to me like yeah last week there was like a bear in my yard eating an elk and I'm like what about like what place are like where am I like and it just I thought it was the coolest thing that people lived with like these large carnivores and elk walking down the street and and so it, it between that and growing up with my dad being a biologist and scientist and always being out in nature I've always been an outdoors person I just was like I really want to like get into conservation in some some regard so I wrote a couple letters to like different organizations one of them Parks Canada and uh, I got a call and and they were working on a living with wildlife program. And they said, hey, come on out and you can be a wildlife interpreter. I was like, cool. And when I got there, it turns out I was a bear babysitter. <laughs> wow. wow. So you have a real attachment to, to not only to the, I mean, we're talking about bears here too. And I guess that's, that's been the really tough one in all yeah. this is that this, it, it so rarely happens. I think we should point this out that fatal bear attacks are very rare. But uh, what's your understanding of what happened on Friday? Because it, it feels like, um, I mean, it's been people around the world are paying attention to it, A, because it's rare. And, and, it, and what a tragedy for two people who seem to have known exactly how to handle that that environment. Yeah, it, it is. It's always a shock. And it, it, it makes me really sad because I think about like how hard so many of us work in human wildlife conflict and environmental education across like Canada and the U.S. and in park systems where we're we're trying so hard and um, you know, and, 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 and it can make a world of difference if you know what to do in an encounter, or if you have a can of bear spray, it could save your life. Uh, and not to say that the victims did anything wrong, because we really don't know what the situation was. Um, but it, it, it really does. Uh, 
it, it, it definitely hurts my heart. Cause I'm just like, I wish there was something we could do to have saved them. Uh, and, and I also realized that there are times when it's just wrong place, wrong time. Like, you know, not everyone that goes out into the wilderness that gets in trouble with a bear, it, it, it's their fault. Um, you know, you could come around a corner and surprise a bear at close range. You could be, you know, setting up your tent somewhere and and not know that the night before a bear had broke into a tent and got into a bunch of food and the bears just come back thinking they're going to get that 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 same food reward, right? So uh, sometimes we just don't know what's going on in an environment before we get there. Right. And I, and I understand that you're a family friend of one of the two, Rich, which makes this all the more tragic. And I suppose it's not that big a community of people who know each other, who are sort of uh, avid outdoors people who walk these areas. Uh, but but the understanding is that they, they were they were very well prepared for this. And, and as you pointed out, we don't know yet exactly what happened, but that this was very much one of those uh, incidents where just it was the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, it's very likely. And I, I know a lot of I mean, everyone has questions, the family has questions, everyone wants to know, you know, why, you know, did this happen? And um, I, I can't add, it's it's so hard to know, there's just so little known about the whole situation. And, and we may never really entirely understand uh, why it happened, because no, there's no one there to, to tell the tale, right? There's just what was left behind to, to kind of figure it out. Yeah. Do we know anything? I mean, just about the bear, the bear itself's behavior afterwards. I mean, I've been reading the reports that the bear was was quite skinny, female, stayed behind, which is, I gathered, uncommon uh, in 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 defensive attacks, more in what we would call predatory attacks. But do you have any? Do, do you read? I mean, the bear was located and and I guess euthanized after. But do we know anything more about the bear itself? Well, it's it's unusual for a bear to be on scene still. Uh, so with with so. So kind of back up here with what do we see with grizzly bear attacks. So there was a worldwide study done recently looking at, at 15 years of bear attacks across Canada, Europe, and Asia. Mm-hmm. And of those attacks, 95% of those were defensive. So bear was surprised at close range. Uh, maybe the bear had cubs, a food source. So those are the majority of the reasons why a grizzly would de- like defend itself. And even when a grizzly bear attacks defensively, the attacks are very short-lived. As long as you don't fight back. If you drop to the ground and play dead, your bear attack is going to be you know, less than two minutes. Yes, some of those people die. Not very many. About 14% of uh, people who are mauled by grizzly bears actually die from their injury. So, uh, and there are certain factors that play a role in that too, right? Like you could be surviving, but because you're stuck in the outdoors for the next 24 or 48 hours, you'll die of exposure or blood loss. Um, you know, there's a lot of other factors that can play a role um, in that. So sometimes it, it's, it's their secondary reasons as to why that person doesn't make it because they weren't able to get access to emergency services, which is totally a possibility here, right? Right. Um, you know, five hours just to get to emergency responders. Um, as far as, uh, you know, a bear still being there, that is something that we would see, yes, more commonly with predation um, because they're not going to leave the scene. Um, you know, a year ago today, uh, there were two women in Dawson City that were attacked by a predatory black bear. Uh, and I was just speaking with one of the survivors yesterday because, oh, wow. you know, it's super tri- It's super triggering for them. Yes. You know, they they. They feel terrible. They're like, you know, we made it and these people didn't. And we just feel so badly for their families. Um, and uh, yeah, when when the officers got on scene and like, I think it took like an hour for them to get there, the bear was still there. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the bear was predatory. There could be other reasons. It could be a different bear entirely, right? Mm-hmm. It, like There could be other bears in the area that smelled the people came over, right? So 
one of the situations that came in, there, there was a dog involved, and I certainly don't want to, you know, cast any blame on the dog, but sometimes that can complicate the situation out in the wild as well, I understand. Uh, for sure. Uh, actually, there was just a, another grizzly bear attack two days ago uh, down in Montana. I don't know if it's really good to hit the news yet, um, but uh, the woman did survive. But, you know, she was just walking her dog down to the river with her husband. Uh, we're still waiting to hear if the dog was off leash, but it, it can be a factor. You know, if your dog runs ahead of you, uh, runs into a bear that's on a carcass or has cubs with it. You know, they look at dogs and they go, this is a carnivore. I mean, our dogs are obviously very related to wolves. They're mostly made up, their DNA is mostly made up of, of wolves. So uh, they see them as a threat and they're like, get out of here, get away from my babies, get away from me, get away from my food. And they chase the dog. And then of course, what does the dog do? They come running back to you. And then the bear sees you and goes, oh no, there's more of them. They're all a threat. And then they attack the person. And it's one of the, the most common causes now of attacks in Canada and the U.S. on adults uh, with, with grizzly bears and black bears. Is that, I mean, we are seeing a rise, I gather, in the encounters, not necessarily the aggressive ones, but just encounters, period. Uh, I, I know that partly has to do, well, I suspect that has to do with the fact that for a while, a lot more people have been going out into those into those areas as well. So needless to say, there's going to be more encounters. And keeping in mind that this, of course, is bear territory. It's their territory, right? Yeah, we're, we're choosing to, you know, if I go to Australia and go to an area where they have a lot of poisonous snakes and, and all of a sudden, you know, way more people start going there, there's going to be more people that are going to get injured by snakes. And, and that is the exact same thing that is happening here in Canada and in the United States. Uh, and, and I say especially so because of COVID, because so many more of us were like, I'm going to become a bike rider or um, I'm going to be a camper. Or I'm going to buy a trailer and go camping. So there's just so many more of us out there in the landscape. And we don't live in a culture where we think I should take a bear safety course before I go and do that. Now, avalanche safety has really improved over the years. And I'm definitely seeing way more people going, oh, I should wear a beacon. I should bring a shovel. I should take an avalanche course. But we're not seeing that when it comes to bear safety or people even carrying bear spray. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, I suppose it's something that we should be increasingly aware of, right? I mean, these sorts of tragedies always leave a lot of people wondering, what do you do to make sure it doesn't happen again? Or how, how do you, what can you take from this incident um, to try and better protect people in the future? And it feels like a tough one because as you pointed out, uh, you know, sometimes in the wild, things happen and there's not much you can do about it. But clearly there are bigger issues here that we should be looking at when it comes to these encounters. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why, you know, we teach we teach uh, a lot of different types of classes. I do a lot of uh, free courses, a couple of courses on Zoom a month. Um, and on things like what are the 10 essentials that you need to carry when you're hiking? Uh, what do you need in your first aid kit? Uh, we have someone come and do a, a free wilderness first aid course for one hour. And it's like, okay, everybody pull out your first aid kits. Like, do you actually know how to use a tourniquet? What if you are in a backcountry setting and you have to wait till the next day and you've got a bad injury, like you have to save yourself. You've got to keep yourself alive. Uh, and, and, and things like bear spray. I mean, it's a highly effective tool at stopping bear attacks. I rarely see cases where people who have been mauled or killed by a bear actually had a can of bear spray or used it. Well, Kim, thank you so much for your time on this tonight. I appreciate it. I guess we'll find out more as that investigation continues. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, an ongoing 
diplomatic issue uh, these days, issues, putting it, to put it mildly, um, the relationship between India and Canada. Now, you'll remember that uh, this all, I mean, there's, it was already strained, uh, and we think we've now found out more about why. Uh, for a while now, Canada's been trying to raise with India uh, its fears, its beliefs that uh, the country was involved, directly involved with the assassination of a Canadian citizen, a Sikh activist and separatist, um, in Surrey back in June. And this has been brought up a few different times. Uh, but the Prime Minister then, a few weeks ago, got up in the House of Parliament and announced it publicly. Apparently, there was about to be some reporting uh, around that uh, to be released in the Global Mail, we had Bob Fife, the Ottawa Bureau Chief, on explaining what they had done, called the PMO and said, we've got this story. We have intelligence sources telling us that this is what the story is um, surrounding the, the murder of Hardeep Singh Najjar, and we're going to report this. So off we went. It went out. The Indians said this is not what happened. They've denied it uh, vehemently. And since then, they've really been on the attack. They've really been on the attack against Canada uh, for doing this, which, of course, Really what Canada's been asking for is cooperate with our investigation. So the latest salvo in all this, apparently, is that India has now asked Ottawa to repatriate 41 of the 62 Canadian diplomats in that country by early next week. Uh, Trudeau told reporters this morning that Canada will try to continue to work with India. We're not looking to escalate, as I've said. We are um, going to be doing the work that matters in uh, continuing to have constructive relations uh, with India through this extremely difficult time. Uh, again, expelling dozens of diplomats would ramp up that confrontation between the two countries, of course. Um, asked if his government would retaliate, if we would retaliate to remove diplomats based here, Trudeau said no. Uh, at least no for now. We're going to try to keep working with New Delhi. Uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, essentially said the same thing. We are in constant cooperation and dialogue with India. We ask them full cooperation on the investigation on Mr. Najjar. And at the same time, we've been in close contact, continuing to engage on the question of our diplomatic freedom. Right. Uh, in, but for the time being, at least, India doesn't show any signs of wanting to talk about this behind the scenes, at least not yet. Um, the Americans have been fairly supportive of Canada's position on this, asking that there be cooperation here, asking that Delhi take this seriously. Uh, but of course, the Indians are also being courted by a lot of people right now, including the Americans, particularly the Americans, as a counterweight to China out there. So we thought we'd go right to the source, someone who knows this topic very well, Randolph Mank is the president of Mank Global Inc., but he's Canada's former high commissioner to Pakistan and Malaysia. He was the ambassador in Jakarta. He was also the head uh, of the Asia Bureau at the Department of Foreign Affairs, now Global Affairs Canada. In other words, the boss of all those diplomatic missions. And he's now a senior a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And he joins me now. Randolph Mank, thank you. Thanks, Ben. Good to be with you. This, I mean, it feels like to here we are today. Uh, the Financial Times have reported an escalation in this in this diplomatic fight between Canada and India. Certainly, if if there was a hope that with, after the public announcement by the Prime Minister in the House of Commons that this would sort of fade into something that could be negotiated in the background, uh, it doesn't feel like that's happening. It sure doesn't. This one caught me as much by surprise as the Prime Minister's speech in the House, where he revealed all of this. That that was unusual, but this. Escalation. If this is confirmed, and I know Melanie Jolie, our foreign minister, is is trying to confirm it and hopefully dampen it down. But if the reporting is confirmed and they're asking that many diplomats to leave 
that's even more extraordinary. That goes beyond diplomatic tit for tat. Of course, the two station chiefs, the intelligence side, were asked to leave uh, respective countries, but now to ask so many diplomats to leave, that's uh, frankly very strange. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I sort of get the point. They've stopped visas, so I, I gather what Delhi is doing here is, is it seems like they're trying to choke off the the, the very regular steady flow of Indian nationals uh, to Canada and back, right? I mean, that feels like the only people who will pay for this are Indian nationals trying to go home to see their families or bring their families over here to visit them. I think you're exactly right. I mean, we we maintain a big consular presence there, and a consular a presence means that you're there to help Canadians, and that includes dual nationals with any kind of issues that they confront and uh, their document requirements, including passports. So there's a there's an actual reason why we would have great numbers in India. It's because our diaspora is big. It's 1.4 million Indians, and, uh, and a lot of them traveling back and forth. We get all of those students. It's a huge source of international students for Canada. So this will actually have an impact on Canadian universities. But even more importantly, I guess, at the individual level, you've got students in India who may have already paid the fees and applied and got accepted and so on. And here's their government um, turning off the tap in terms of services and asking Canadians to leave. And that really complicates the relationship. Uh, I think unnecessarily at this point, we've already complicated enough. Let's not make it worse. What do you make of, of of India's ongoing anger over this? Because clearly they were clearly the government was was and and the media and, and its proxies, so to speak, were upset by the way this was said so publicly. But if you read now, it seems very clear that that for for quite a few months. Canada had been using the back channels that one would expect them to use to try to say, listen, this is a deep, this is a big deal for us. You need to, you need to help us out here because we have information that leads us to believe that you've, you've been involved in the assassination of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, regardless of what your opinion of said Canadian was. And it feels like they've been pushing back ever since, even asking that the investigation be dropped at one point. So this, this, this is an odd one. Well, you know, you could actually see equal measures of right and wrong on both sides, which mm-hmm. isn't a bad way to start when you're trying to practice diplomacy. You know, a little bit of empathy. The the Indian side is quite correct. We've allowed hate speech and perhaps threatening uh, language to come out of the more radical elements of our wonderful Sikh community. We haven't cracked down, and there's there's obviously gang type activity going on in Canada that we should be tackling through law enforcement. That's their principal demand of us. It has been since I was in charge of the Canada-India relations. They've always wanted that. At the same time, uh, Canada's not going to stage a golden temple type moment like India did in 1984, where we just go in and raid a temple in India that caused hundreds of deaths in the raid and then thousands of deaths in the aftermath, not to mention the assassination of their prime minister four months later. So we're not going to do that. We have our own law and order uh, mechanisms. The, the trouble is they, they move rather slowly, and India is upset by it. So now we're in a period of, of escalation, and Canada's on the side of saying, let's not escalate this any further than we've already done. Let's uh, calm it down and have some diplomatic discussions now. India doesn't seem to want to cooperate on law enforcement, and that that raises suspicions. I know from working in government that our intelligence services are good. They're made even better by the Five Eyes cooperation from 
whence uh, this information reportedly came. So yeah, I have no doubt that we have good basis for our um, for the prime minister's allegations. Why the Indians don't want to participate? Well, you can understand why. If if it's true that they sent agents to do this, they certainly don't want to be talking about this in the open in international public fora. So there's good and and bad in both positions. But again, just to return to this this uh, escalation that we're hearing today, removing so many diplomats, that's that's going way too far. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, of course, they're heading into an election as well. There's a lot of poli- a lot of domestic politics going on here. And I'm, I'm sure, as you well know, that often shapes responses to some of these things, timing and domestic responses. But the, I was reading an interesting quote the other day that essentially what India is saying is, if we did this, we were right to do it because you haven't taken our complaint seriously. And if we didn't, you're wrong for having said it so publicly. So it kind of puts Canada in a, in a situation diplomatically where Canada really couldn't be silent about this and have it sort of emerge in the media and turn into another firestorm kind of had to get out and say something about this. At the same time, as you know, as a diplomat, that puts Canada in a very tough situation because the Indians were going to bristle at this no matter what, being called out publicly, especially at a time when so many are courting them as a counterbalance to China. Yeah, you're you're making good points. It is a difficult position because there is this thesis that you've just uh, described that uh, we pretty well had to get out in front of the reporting that was going to become public. But did we really? Quite often we say, well, we don't comment on intelligence matters or law enforcement matters, and that's the end of it. And uh, we don't normally have the prime minister getting up in parliament making statements. That was a reflection of frustration, I have no doubt, after the um, security level officials uh, had tried and tried to elicit cooperation, couldn't get it. From the Indian side, you're right to point out the election that's coming up there next year. Mr. Modi is certainly playing the nationalist card. This is very popular. It's always popular in politics to have an external enemy. Mm -hmm. And oddly, our um, very soft and polite prime minister has suddenly taken up the role of of the villain in Indian politics, which is a very odd thing for Mr. Trudeau to, to be cast as. So where to from here? Because it feels like we're trying to de-escalate this, at least. You know, we, we seem to have aligned up a few of our allies, the important ones. The Americans have been a little more vocal about wanting India to cooperate here, so have the Brits. But India doesn't feel like it wants to de-escalate this at all right now. So does, does Canada simply go into this kind of rinse and repeat pattern of saying, we don't want to comment on this, we're just trying to de-escalate? I think you phrased it perfectly, rinse and repeat, because... There isn't, there isn't an easy way out of, of this for either side, frankly. But uh, Canada's doing what it needs to do, which is the messaging to calm it down. Let's have a conversation. Let's see if we really need to expel so many diplomats. And uh, India, of course, as time goes on, it'll get closer to its own election. And uh, there'll be less incentive, perhaps, for letting Canada off the hook, so to speak, in public pronouncements. So I don't know. There, there are some aspects to the commercial relationship that I think India needs. It needs Canadian potash. It, it needs uh, the lentils that we supply. We're their largest supplier of lentils, which is important in their food supplies. Uh, we've been a, a friendly partner. We, of course, have that large diaspora. Uh, and there are lots of people-to-people connections. So there are pathways to friendliness again. But I have a feeling it's going to take us until we get past the current Indian political season, which really is takes us till next summer. 
Yeah. Quite a while yet. That is. That is. I mean, you spoke of this earlier. Have we not taken, I mean, I think on both sides, have we not understood each other? Because one thought, I mean, I covered the Air India Inquiry many, many years ago, and there was such an emphasis on the failure, at least on Canada's side, of understanding what was happening in India at the time. You mentioned the Golden Temple earlier uh, in Amritsar. And, and have we done that again? Have we somehow talked past each other for the last five or six years and and India all of a sudden a more far more sort of aggressively nationalist India under under Prime Minister Modi and all of a sudden saw Canada as maybe the place where they could test out this far more aggressive foreign policy of of, of tar- literally targeting people they don't like on other soil because clearly they they'd done it in California or in Britain there would have been a bigger price to pay. I think you put your finger on something important there. And I've heard this thesis being developed that they're sowing their wild oats, so to speak, on the international stage as they're emerging as a, a significant player. And I'd, I'd like them to emerge as a more significant global player. I've written on this topic, and it goes to UN Security Council reform. I think India should be playing a far greater role on the peace side. Sending out assassins is not the way to go, certainly not in peaceful countries like Canada who are your friends and trading partners. I I think you've also made a good point, though, about Canada not quite being on the same page as India. We're developing our Indo-Pacific strategy and putting India there at the pivot point of of our um, new moves in Asia. We're kind of forgetting that their principal demand, even back decades to my time, is do something about these radicals who are demanding an independent Khalistan in the Punjab. We're not doing that. So if they did take action, it's because that's always been their principal demand. They've gone too far, but we haven't gone far enough in terms of uh, imposing law and order on uh, incitements to hate or violence or any kind of uh, radical behavior on our soil using Canada as a staging ground for for a movement that is really not uh, desired by most Punjabis in India itself. Where to from here then? I mean, you, you sort of mentioned, I guess it's going to sort of, as long as, as the Trudeau government still in power, and the Modi government is still in power, feels like they found themselves uh, a, a nice foreign target to aim at, especially now that we've they've been sort of, you know, impugned on the world stage. But there's going to be pressure on Canada as well to keep quiet. What do you see as the outcome here? It feels like India may have to make some concessions because the Americans and the Brits and so on are going to ask them for them. But it doesn't feel like there's going to be much in the way of accountability here if, in fact, they are guilty as charged. Well, that's the right way to look at it, because uh, even if there is cooperation at the um, at the level of law enforcement, intelligence sharing, I don't think India is going to suddenly say, yes, we did it. I'm sorry. And, you know, let's announce it to the world. That That's not the way the world works. It's going to have to be played very low key, and I think it's going to fester for uh, quite a few months. And I think the role of of the Canadian diplomats is damage control, uh, try to keep the commercial investment relationship alive, try your very best to facilitate those students who could otherwise be harmed by being kept away. Just keep dialoguing about it until we get past maybe the uh, the emotions of it and the politics that are into it now. And uh, hopefully we'll have a brighter day at some point. I mean, looking back to what your old job was, sort of overseeing all the Asian missions. um, Wow. I mean, we have China. We're on the outs with China. We're certainly on the outs with India at this point. Those are two very big, very powerful, very populous countries. It feels like Canada's in, in, 
in a bit of a tough spot diplomatically these days, not necessarily of our own doing, but we're not completely blameless here. Well, it certainly takes the air out of our Indo-Pacific strategy when you've got uh, such a huge swath of Asian and, in fact, global population on the outs with Canada in terms of the relationships. But I have to say my Indonesian friends are saying to me, you see, we told you it should have been Indo, meaning Indonesia-Pacific strategy. (laughs) So maybe they're right. It was a huge market for BlackBerry when I was uh, working for that company. That's right. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to we'll have to keep an open mind about uh, about who our friends and allies are uh, in that neck of the woods. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. Good talking to you. It's been election night in Manitoba. It's been a bit slow in the counting, but from the get go, as those polls closed about uh, three hours ago now, and uh, they started to count the votes, the NDP, uh, who were the uh, the challengers, so to speak, in this election, uh, the progressive conservatives in Manitoba uh, under Brian Pallister had won the previous two elections. Pallister resigned in 2021 to be replaced by Heather Stephenson. Um, and that election tonight appears to have, we have a new government. So Premier-elect Wab Canoe and the NDP uh, appear to have won this election in Manitoba. Right now, leading or elected in, last I looked, I'll look again, 33 seats um, with the uh, NDP, or at least the Progressive Conservatives with 23 seats and the Liberals with just one. It is a 57-seat legislature. So if you do the math, you need 29 for a majority. And it looks like uh, after those 16 years in power up to 2016, that the New Democrats are now once again in government in Manitoba. Now, this is a huge night for Wab Canoe. He is 41. He's a former musician, broadcaster, author, university administrator. He's been the head of the NDP in Manitoba since about since 2017. He becomes tonight the first First Nations provincial premier in this country, and certainly the first uh, First Nations provincial premier of Manitoba. And there are a lot of, and that that is obviously uh, a groundbreaking moment in this country. There's been a lot of reaction uh, to it tonight. Uh, Heather Stephenson has already delivered her concession speech. Um, at one point, she said, "Wab, I hope your win tonight inspires Indigenous children to get involved in politics, not just here, but right across the country." Uh, BC's NDP premier now has um, someone else, another NDP premier um, in the ranks in in the West, no less. Apparently, David Eby has spoken to. Wab Canoe already this evening. Uh, Scott Moe has also just recently uh, come out on social media uh, to congratulate Canoe uh, on his victory, uh, saying as well that he was, uh, he says, congratulations uh, to Premier-elect Wab Canoe on a hard-fought election victory. I look forward to continuing the collaboration between our two provinces as we address the challenges facing Western Canada. So uh, a lot to talk about tonight, specifically what happened during the campaign. It was a pretty hard, it was a very hard-fought campaign. The NDP ran a very disciplined campaign focused primarily on issues around health care. The Conservatives, as they began to lose, started to fire some real uh, unpleasant shots at, at the NDP and in Web, at Web Canoe uh, as well. Uh, Nigan Sinclair is a professor at the University of Manitoba, an associate professor, assistant professor rather, and a columnist, and he joins me now online. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Yeah, Boshu, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell me about watching that speech. I know we we're delaying a little bit so you could watch Wab Canoe uh, give his his acceptance speech. What was that like? Uh, it's pretty emotional. Um, uh, I know everybody on stage there. Uh, I've known Wab since he was just a boy. Our families are friends. And uh, uh, as an Indigenous person, seeing a First Nations premier is a pretty remarkable moment. But 
he's got a really big task ahead of him. And, uh, and there's fears, I think, almost immediately that there's a lot of promises and how we're going to pay for them. And, and he's tackled the most difficult issue possible, which is health care. Uh, the Conservatives have choked the life out of health care here in Manitoba, and the previous NDP government before that certainly contributed. So we've got a real big task in front of them, and especially coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the campaign, because in this case, I know obviously uh, Wab had run the previous campaign against against Brian Pallister, and, and so he sort of cut his teeth in a campaign, and it struck me just from watching from afar that the NDP ran a very focused and very disciplined campaign this time around, as you mentioned, focused specifically on health care. Yeah, it was health care, health care, and health care. I mean, the uh, the Conservatives tried to make this election about tax cuts, and that didn't res- resound and didn't resonate with voters. And then they tried to make it about parental rights, and that didn't resound or resonate with voters. And so what they did is they went very ugly, and they started to make issues of Wab Canoe's race and uh, his past dealings with the law, drawing upon stereotypes, uh, and then, of course, tying that into... Uh, the big issue of the campaign during the last few weeks, which was the search of the landfill site for Indigenous women from a alleged uh, serial killer here in the province. And so the real issue is is, is uh, searching that landfill really brought up a lot of uh, issues around feelings in certain parts of the province that sort of feel anti-reconciliation and feel Indigenous peoples get too many things and we should just worry, we should just leave uh, people within garbage dumps, and of course that inflamed a whole bunch of other issues, and so it got very ugly at the end. And it it was Wab Canoe who really uh, didn't really run a, a, an ugly campaign because he kept talking about unity, bringing Manitoba together, um, but he really solidified the electorate around the issue of health care uh, versus the Conservatives, who were really my colleague at the Free Press referred to as uh, trying to create a coalition of the angry. Right. I, I obviously I looked this up earlier. I mean, you've you've known him, you've known the premier elect for many many years. You still you've you've been on sort of book panels with him and so on. You've kind of watched him grow up to what he's become today over all these many years from all the different sort of careers he's had. What kind of premier do you think he'll be? Uh, the Wab Canoe of today is certainly not the Wab Canoe that I've known for decades uh, because our families uh, started the first Anishinaabe. Uh, language program here in Winnipeg. Uh, they started that uh, way back in the 1980s. He's the age of my sister. And so I didn't really know him. I still don't really know him. Uh, I know him because our families know each other. And certainly his father was a mentor of mine and his mother was a colleague of mine at the University of Manitoba. Mm-hmm. Um, my father has uh, has mentored him in different ways as well. And that's kind of the way the Indigenous community works is we all kind of know each other, but we're not certainly all in agreement we don't all work in the same ways but but i can tell you that if there's one thing that wab canoe is today uh he is undoubtedly a family man uh he has become the most uh positive father i could see and he's a person that genuinely cares about people he's been his entire life has been working towards representing people and at a very early age he was denoted as uh as a leader. And his, I remember his sister telling me, his sister was one of my students when I was a high school teacher and uh, told me that my brother is going to be a leader one day. And uh, I remember that, that very distinctly. And when I met him uh, as a teenager, he was a very angry man, but he's now turned into a, a real positive force and someone who has a smile on his face and someone who's thinking about the best of all. 
Um, my father says to me that, uh, that you, to be a politician, you have to love the people. And undoubtedly, Wab Canoe is a person who loves the people, whether they agree with them or not. Yeah. You, you mentioned, of course, I mean, the NDP did really well tonight in Winnipeg. I think that was expected. Uh, but you mentioned, of course, you know, governing is difficult and there are a lot of challenges ahead right now. Where does where does one begin? He's going to have to uh, the NDP itself are going to have to fulfill some of these promises uh, that they've made about trying to fix the health care system. Uh, when the history books are read, uh, written, sorry, about this election, uh, the two stories that will be written um, are the uh, the collapse of the Liberal vote and the fact that Manitobans were convinced to uh, turn to the NDP. And the second is the divisiveness of the Conservative campaign. Both of those stories don't really start with uh, the NDP. And I think that that results in, while there may be high expectations to deal with the issue of health care and to uh, deal with affordability, which is what the NDP's promised, those two basic things, um, I think generally what's going to happen is that uh, there's going to be a honeymoon period. It's a sort of an Obama-esque feeling in Manitoba right now where, I mean, Manitoba for a long time has been painted by cities across the country. And that's what Wab talked about in the very first words of his speech tonight. Yeah, Manitoba has been painted negatively by most of the country as kind of this backwards place, this place full of racism, this place that is uh, one of the have-not provinces. Uh, but today made one of the most progressive steps this country has ever seen and certainly is never being seen in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver uh, when the electorate, the majority of the electorate, uh, chose a First Nations premier and believe that a First Nations person can lead a province where uh, only just a few decades ago we were forbidden the, to even vote, to, uh, to leave the reserve, to even parent our own children. And so uh, I think that's a real sign that in Manitoba there's um, there's going to be a honeymoon period for quite a while, I think, until perhaps uh, the issue of health care might take some of the front pages. And it all goes back to human dignity of our people. So the right thing to do is to ensure that the search in the landfills be done. We did a feasibility study. We, we proved that it could be done, and it should be done. That was uh, Grand Chief Kathy Merrick of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. We spoke to her on Thursday last week, of course, when it had emerged uh, over the weekend that uh, the progressive conservatives who've now lost tonight uh, were running ads, essentially bragging about not wanting, not paying to search this landfill site where it's believed the, uh, that two women who were the victims of an alleged serial killer are buried. At least police believe that that's the case. Um, uh, Nigan Sinclair is with us this half hour. He's an assist, assistant professor at the University of Manitoba. We're talking about the NDP's win, a historic win tonight in Manitoba. Uh, Wab Canoe, the new uh, premier-elect, is the first First Nations premier of any province in this country, certainly of Manitoba. Uh, Nigan, I was surprised that this issue came up the way it did during the campaign. And I guess now uh, there's certainly a lot of hope out there tonight that I, from different people I was reading that uh, that there will, in fact, now be a search, that this this will now be done and that this very kind of ugly few weeks in the election campaign will be put to rest and that and that this will, in fact, move forward. Is that realistic? Uh, well, it's very. So it was very clear that the conservatives thought that or had polling data certainly that they, if they drew upon uh, the landfill issue and put they in their own slogans said stand firm against doing a search for Indigenous women at a landfill, even though the police have said that they are there, their remains are there. 
um, that they felt that that would get them over the hump and have enough support to be able to either hold on to government or certainly be much more competitive than they were. Uh, I guess they bet wrong on that because uh, it certainly is evident that enough people turned away and were turned off by that message. Um, is it realistic? Well, the range of the cost in the feasibility study, which uh, former Premier, now former Premier, uh, Heather Stephenson ordered, I mean, she asked for a feasibility study uh, to be done as maybe a delay tactic, or maybe she was genuinely curious as to how much of this would cost and is it possible, uh, is between $84 million and $184 million. Uh, and it would take up to two years to investigate that site because we are talking about a very large landfill site. Um, it's, there's a range of approaches that people have suggested to search that landfill site. Um, and uh, and what Wab Canoe has done is he kind of played the middle card. He didn't come out right away to say he was going to search the landfill site. Um, the, the Manitoba Liberals, uh, who put, performed terribly badly in this election, um, they came out and said, we're absolutely going to fund this. And uh, if we were turned into a government, which, you know, Liberals have never formed government in Manitoba, um, maybe it's easy to make that promise. But they certainly came out first. And it took a number of weeks for the NDP to come out. And so there's been some question over whether the NDP, if they do perform a search, will be more closer to the 84 million than the 184 million, which would be an absolute investigation of the entire site. Perhaps what they're looking at doing a sort of strategic search or looking at getting the federal government on board, uh, because certainly the federal government has a role to play in this. And former Minister of Indigenous Affairs, uh, Mark Miller, said that he was willing to put some money on the table to help with that search. Uh, it's just an issue of the province wasn't willing to come to the table, and now perhaps the province is. Yeah, I should mention that both Heather Stephenson, uh, the leader of the Progressive Conservatives, has resigned this evening. Uh, so is Dougal Lamont. He's the the head of the Liberals. As uh, as Nigan was mentioning, the uh, the Liberals are down to one seat. Uh, they they didn't have much of a hope of winning, but they were reduced to just one seat. Uh, in, in as far as we could tell, they were ahead in one seat tonight, uh, far behind everybody else. Um, th- this is going to change the dynamics of politics out west a little bit. You now have an NDP government in BC. You have another NDP government in Manitoba. Um, this could be, I mean, I, this might be positive news, certainly judging by the reaction on social media tonight, certainly the ND, federal NDP are very happy about this, but so are the NDP out here in BC. And this could be ha- perhaps another ally for perhaps, depending on, on, on what's offered, another ally, uh, for the federal government, um, on the, you know, out West. Oh, by far, I think the happiest person tonight is Justin Trudeau, because this puts a small interruption in what has been about six months of uh, Pierre Polyev and the federal conservatives kind of just hitting home runs on the issues and, and watching the liberals kind of flounder. Uh, the fact is that for a very long period of time, uh, from the Maritimes all the way to the Rocky Mountains, there was uh, consistent conservative premiers. And probably the most progressive of that, oddly enough, weirdly enough, is, was probably Doug Ford. Uh, would be the one that maybe is a bit of an anomaly in that group because uh, for many ways, uh, Doug Ford was on the side of Justin Trudeau for an, on a number of issues. But, you know, if Doug Ford is your best friend, uh, certainly Justin <laughs> Trudeau would be looking for someone perhaps more centrist or, or someone that's a bit more of a social conscience, and, and he'll find that in Wab Canoe. And undoubtedly, the federal Liberals will uh, look to what's happening in Manitoba and perhaps hope that there is a, a bit of a chink in the armor of the conservative wave that's starting to envelop the country. But I don't think it's any coincidence. I think it's, uh, you know, can- the way Canada almost consistently works is that 
Uh, when there's conservatives in Ottawa at the federal government, then there tends to be more center-left-leaning premiers, uh, liberals, NDPs. And so what you're seeing is is a sentiment in the country that perhaps is turning conservative federally. Certainly the polls are suggesting that. And then I think this absolutely shows evidence that in Manitoba, anyways, uh, perhaps not so much in Alberta or maybe even Saskatchewan, but... Uh, in Manitoba, there is a progressive element that really wants to rebuke and to step, speak back to that conservative leaning, especially around the issue of parental rights and social issues and social conscious. I mean, those just did not catch any fire in Manitoba. Uh, they had absolutely no support uh, on the issue of trying to control gender pronouns of LGBTQ students by parents. Uh, and I think that in some provinces, that's the big issue, New Brunswick, for example. But it's certainly, uh, and certainly in Saskatchewan, they're using the not- notwithstanding clause for uh, trying to evoke parental rights. But in Manitoba, it just didn't work. And so uh, that's evidence that I think that Justin Trudeau can find an ally in Manitoba. And good, bad, great, ugly, however you feel about that, certainly shows some diversity on the prairies, which we haven't seen in a while. Well, again, St. Clair, thanks so much uh, for your time tonight. Much appreciated. On uh, We kept shifting it because we kept not having the results, so I appreciate you hanging on tonight. Yeah, miigwech. Thanks so much for your time. This was an interesting headline, and it's been picked up in many places. You may have already seen it uh, over the past few days. Um, the headline is, Mammals will most likely be wiped from the face of the Earth by our planet's next supercontinent, a new study has revealed. And you think, well, wait a second. What do you mean mammals will most likely be wiped from the face of the Earth by our planet's next supercontinent? When's that going to happen? Sounds pretty alarming on its own, right? So what exactly is it all about? Well, it turns out it's 250 million years in the future. And that's that's quite the weather forecast, isn't it? But they do modeling around this stuff. I mean, supercontinents have existed in the past, in the very distant past, and they will again, presumably in the very distant future. So by modeling the heat tolerance of mammals alongside Earth's climatic conditions 250 million years in the future, scientists have discovered that the formation of the most probable next supercontinent will bring about the likely extinction of our animal order. So we figured, well, who does this kind of work? Uh, and what are they basing it on? And wow, it must be really interesting stuff. Uh, this study was published in a magazine called, or a journal rather, called Nature Geoscience. And joining me now is Alexander Farnsworth. He's a climatologist at the University of Bristol in Britain, and he is the study's lead author. This is his work. Alexander, thank you so much. No, that's great. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, this is, I mean, this is something we don't think about much because it's so far in the future and geological time and, and what we consider to be time are, are kind of feel like two very different things. But the basis of all of this really is that even though we don't sense it, continents are always moving. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, I, I, I kind of likened it to the very long term sort of natural rhythm and heartbeat of the Earth. You know, these uh, tectonic plates, you know. We never we we feel them, you know, when we have earthquakes. We know that what they're doing, we know they're having an impact, and they're moving and hitting against each other, rubbing against each other. So, you know, they they do have this massive impact, but they move ever so slowly. You know, trying to think about what might happen in two hundred fifty million years when they all come together, it kind of seems a bit nebulous in many ways. Yes, and yet, I mean, you know, if past is prologue, I mean, we all know what a world map looks like today, and vast continents separate you and I at this point. For vast mm-hmm. oceans, rather, separate you and I at this point in North America <laughs> and in Europe and and elsewhere. There are these oceans that separate us, but it hasn't always been that way. When was the last time we had one of these supercontinents? 
Oh, so the last one, you know, the most recent supercontinent in the geologic past was around, you know, it finished roughly about 200 million years ago, you know, what we actually call just Pangaea itself. So that's when it started to sort of break up and, uh, you know, dissolve into the kind of many continents we have today. But, you know, these these supercontinents have existed for, you know, we think maybe upwards of 10 to even 16 supercontinents may have existed over the last 2.6 billion years in Earth's history. You know, these these things are part of this natural Wilson cycle we have where every sort of four to 600 million years, you get this sort of natural assembly and breakup, assembly and breakup, uh, producing these different types of supercontinents in the past. And they, you know, they have a very big impact. Yeah, they don't tend to do too well. I mean, mass extinction events tend to correspond with some of these supercontinent uh, times, right? When it hasn't been too, too friendly to those inhabiting uh, what Mm. they then know as Earth. Yeah, it's, you know... You, you, four of the, the so-called, you know, big five mass extinctions, where there's huge amounts of extinctions for lots of species, both in the terrestrial realm and the marine realm, have you know occurred all when these sort of supercontinents have existed in the past? Only the most recent sort of dinosaur, big KPG asteroid extinction event hasn't really occurred where there was a supercontinent. So you know, there seems to be this sort of coincidental, some might suspect, or other scientists, you know, show that there, these supercontinents produce processes and mechanisms that sort of predispose the earth and climate to these very big natural swings in temperature that do lead to these big mass extinctions and you know they're fairly consistent when they happen so you know you you might make an argument that if we considerly do these sort of supercontinent formations and decay every 400 million years or so you do get these sort of natural resetting of life along with it in many respects Right. I, I suppose so much of what lives on the Earth at that point is adapted to what exists at the at then and then slowly but surely. Does it happen all at once when these supercontinents come together? Uh, the way you make it sound, and we'll talk about what happens, what you your research into the very uh, the very far future in a second. But it's it feels like, although it's quite slow moving, that when they do in fact come together, it can be quite cataclysmic when it does happen. Yeah, it's it's a difficult process. You know, we we you know. We, there's what we call this sort of so-called faint young sun paradox, where we knew in the past, you know, the sun produced much less energy than it does today. Yet the Earth was still very habitable, you know, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of years ago. So, you know, what what was going on? Why, you know, obviously there's some sort of counteracting um, processes such as more CO2 in the atmosphere or changes in albedo on the land surface that make the world warmer, sort of counteract this less energy from the sun. And we think of the very long time scales, these two are sort of in balance and sort of keep the climate quite livable for most species. But, you know, when you get these big supercontinents starting to, you know, geologically over time scales of millions to tens of millions of years, once they start forming, you then start getting lots of sort of volcanism happening, you know, lots of these big, big deserts appearing, big changes in seasonality and other sort of intercontinental temperatures that really stress out, you know, these organisms that, you know, put them out of the sort of natural envelope of climate they've been very happy to to exist in for, you know, tens of even hundreds of millions of years so you know these supercontinents really do seem to have a big impact on the type of life and you know it might seem like it happens over a very short period but a uh, long period rather but geologically speaking and in terms evolutionary rates sort of work at it it can be quite rapid 
Right. And and now with this work that you've done, we then now look into the future because what's happened in the past will no doubt, we think, happen again. Tell me a bit about this new continent, this new supercontinent that is way off in the future, but geologically speaking, not necessarily that far away. No, no, quite. You know, this we expect there's a lots of uncertainties here, I have to say first, but we expect this sort of supercontinent will form in the next sort of 250 million years. And this is kind of predicated on some sort of what we call plate modeling by some colleagues, especially Chris Skatiz, who has looked at the past of how these sort of supercontinents behave and te- plate tectonics, the sort of mantle convection, where these big lithospheric plates sort of float on this sort of liquid mantle in our, in our Earth. And, uh, you know, just like the oceans, there are these sort of currents which sort of move these tectonics around the world and, you know, different sort of frictional rates and collisional rates that you can start to determine behaviours of how they react to one another. And you can use that sort of past information to try and now predict exactly how the plates might, you know, form into the future and come together for the next supercontinent. So that's kind of the sort of thought process that's gone into this next formation of the supercontinent. But, you know, we, we... where we predict this is going to occur pretty much center on the equator. Three other, you know, there's about three different realizations which sort of agree with this sort of central equator, tropical, tropics, uh, supercontinent formation. But there's still uncertainty to this. There's a very much newer realization which even predicts that the supercontinent may instead form right on top of the North Pole. So again, that would create quite a different climate than what we have here. Again, it's a bit controversial. There's lots of discussion whether such a supercontinent on the North Pole could happen. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to show that there's lots of these uh, different ways which a supercontinent could form. So, I mean, w- when you look at, at, at this equator model of a supercontinent, uh, wow, there's not much habit- you know, habitable Earth up out there for mammals, so to speak, or many species for that matter. Yeah, no, exactly that. It's uh, it's not a very hospitable world. And, you know, the, the reasons why it becomes so hot, you know, I like to kind of describe almost as a bit of a triple whammy. Mm-hmm. You know, you get for the very first instance, this uh, big supercontinent with all the tectonic plates formed together in the tropics. Well, we can already predict without even needing a climate model that if you're going to have most of your uh, landmass centered in the, the very hot tropics, it's probably going to be quite hot. And, you know, just to confirm it, we ran that experiment with today, day's CO2 and solar output, not changing anything else exact except for where the continent sits and producing a supercontinent. And, you know, just by changing that, you already increase sort of land surface temperatures threefold. So, you know, it's going to be a very hot uh, land surface and re- uh, continent just by the simply being within the tropics. Now, when you then add on top of that, we know that as the sun gets older, it gets brighter fusion tends to increase and we have a quite a fairly good handle that you know by about 250 million years that sort of increase of energy from the sun will be about two and a half percent greater so again that now interacting with this supercontinent is going to make it quite much much warmer as well and then on top of that we also know these sort of these supercontinent formation processes tend to lead to lots of volcanism at the plate margins and of course if we get lots of volcanism we're going to get lots of co2 being kind of spewed all the way up into the atmosphere and of course more co2 in the atmosphere going to be hotter temperatures as well so it's this kind of three-way processes which really combine to really produce these really significantly hot temperatures where you know you can get upwards of 40 50 and sometimes 60 degrees celsius 
Wow. <laughs> that doesn't sound pleasant at all. How much of a difference would it be if you ended up instead with uh, with something closer to the pole, for instance, as you were mentioning earlier, other modeling shows that that uh, that might be a possibility? Yeah, I think, you know, if, if such a realization were to happen, undoubtedly, you'd get much cooler temperatures. Uh, you know, the further away you get from the tropics, the less sort of incident solar radiation you tend to get out those sort of latitudes so kind of almost like akin today in in sort of canada you know you get much cooler colder temperatures in the winter uh you would also quite expect to get much cooler colder temperatures up at these much much higher latitudes especially if you're center of the north pole you know there'd be lots of other interesting challenges to deal with you know the day length would be very different uh especially over the winter where there's no light at all happening what would that do to plants how do they survive in that type of regime mm-hmm. but it would certainly be much more in in the thermal regimes much more temperature friendly for uh, many mammals in that respect Right. I mean, this all is very far off in the future, but it must have just doing this work. uh, What is the goal of doing the work other than sort of trying to figure out what's going to happen 250 million years from now? Yeah, I guess there's there's several kind of interesting angles we wanted to kind of poke around into these sort of models. You know, for the first one, I spend a lot of my time looking at past climates over the geological past. And I sometimes model what happened 500 million years ago, for instance. And, you know, we want to try and understand what's the very long term behavior of the climate and what drives these big, big changes we've seen through the geological record. You know, when you get these big extinction events, such as when we had about 252 million years ago, what we call the great dying at the Permo-Triassic boundary, where about 90% of species all perished, we want to understand, was that something very unique to some maybe big volcanic eruption, or did the volcanic eruption have a big impact because of the super um, continent was also present at the same time? So we want to try and understand what these big, big changes in Earth's life and evolution and climate had. And, you know, by adding this future direct trajectory of what a new supercontinent might have, we can then start to understand the sort of long term future processes and how they all might combine into this sort of long term tectonic rhythm that the Earth system has. And uh, so that's kind of one angle we wanted to look at and how the long term evolution of species kind of uh, through its interactions with tectonics and climate have. And, you know, you get this, you know, for a species, you get this, you know, for for the mammals, let's say, if our prediction holds true, the mammals will have existed for roughly around nearly 450, 500 million years. Right. That's, evolutionary speaking, pretty good going. It certainly is. I, I, we'll, we'll hope for the time being it continues. Alexander, thank you so much. My pleasure.